The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by IBM. Big data at the speed of business. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. Let me take a moment to welcome members of our armed forces who are tuning in today from remote outposts around the world. Thank you for being with us. In just a moment, the founder of the world's largest private military, Blackwater USA, will be joining us. Though there's no question whether Blackwater has played an important role in U.S. security, Eric Prince continues to be one of our nation's most controversial figures, and he's here today to separate fact from fiction and help us understand why a private military is necessary. But before he joins us, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about his background. Eric Dean Prince was born in Holland, Michigan, the youngest of four children. His father was an entrepreneur who began as a salesman and eventually founded the successful Prince Machine Corporation. The company became a billion-dollar supplier to the automotive industry thanks to the elder Prince's adventurous spirit. Following high school, Eric attended the Naval Academy for a short period before enrolling in Hillsdale College, where he received his degree in economics. While in college, Prince was a volunteer firefighter, a cold-water diver for the sheriff's department, and later an emergency technician. During these formative years, Prince was already balancing his penchant for business with his love of being on the front lines, where quick reactions and thinking were prized above all else. In 1990, Prince accepted a White House internship under George W. Bush, and following this assignment, he interned for Congressman Dana Rohabacher. Then in 92, he was commissioned as an officer in the U.S. Navy. He qualified as a Navy SEAL and joined the SEAL Team 8, which sent him to Haiti, the Middle East, the Balkans, and other hot spots. But soon Prince was ready to strike out on his own. It was impossible to ignore the growing need for a state-of-the-art training facility for U.S. special operations. So, following a short hiatus to tend to his family, Prince bought 6,000 acres in North Carolina and set up a facility called Blackwater. And that should have been that. But as budget cuts began to collide with new threats to the United States, the demand for highly trained security personnel exploded. In short order, Blackwater became the State Department's largest security provider, and from 2001 to 2010, the CIA awarded over $600 million in contracts to the company. Then came civilian casualties in Iraq, and soon, many of the same politicians Blackwater had protected, and in some cases saved, were calling for investigations. In 2010, Prince stepped down from Blackwater. Today, Mr. Prince operates a private equity firm called Frontier Resource Group and oversees his family's charitable foundation. And in 2013, he released a tell-all book about Blackwater, which we're going to learn more about 
in today's program. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report former U.S. Navy SEAL and founder of Blackwater, Mr. Eric Prince. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. If it's okay with you, I'd like to open the show with the most basic question that I think our audience has on their mind. Why do we need a private military? Well, you know, the private sector has played a role in American national security uh, really since the founding of the country. Uh, If you look back to uh, guys like John Smith or Miles Standish, uh, people that helped build the Plymouth or Massachusetts Bay or Virginia colonies, uh, they were professional soldiers that were hired by then uh, private companies to come and protect the colony. And if you think about the founding of the Continental Army, um, guys like, uh, well, there's statues of them right across the street from the White House. Statues of Lafayette, Rochambeau, Von Steuben, Kosciuszko, uh, professional military officers, contractors, private, private citizens from a foreign country, mercenaries, if you will, that even came and built the Continental Army. So there has always been a part, uh, a role for the private sector in supporting national security in America, and, uh, and there always will be. And uh, it, it's a the, the private citizens operating um, in the battle space is really as old as warfare itself. So what it, we're saying it, it, is private... This is not a new thing at all. This is not new. This, this has been going on back to, dating back to George Washington, uh, who had to hire soldiers to buttress our military. Um, sure. I mean, even, uh, you know, America's first uh, covert action overseas mm-hmm. uh, was the Barbary Pirates. And you had a um, terrible problem with Americans being... Uh, taken off their ships, held for hostage. Uh, in that case, you had a U.S. warship that was surrendered, and you had 340 uh, sailors held hostage by the pirates in Tripoli. Uh, the ransom demand exceeded the defense budget that year. So Jefferson was in a bit of a pickle, and he turned to a former Army officer uh, named William Eaton, uh, who took uh, eight Marines and about 90 contracted mercenaries, French, Greek, and Italian, and they marched all the way from Alexandria, Egypt, all the way into Libya, uh, conquered a garrison ten times their size and put enough pressure on the uh, the pirates to release the Americans held hostage. So, again, you know, the Marines' hymn says, from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, on that mission there was about ten times as many contractors as there were Marines. Now, help me understand something. When, it, when a private firm like Blackwater contracts with the CIA or the State Department, do Blackwater civilian employees enjoy the same legal protections as government employees? Um, well, first let's clarify, you know, rules of engagement are dictated by that customer. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's someone operating under some kind of diplomatic clearance, they would enjoy some sort of diplomatic protection, um, just like a, uh, a government employee would. So, uh, when it comes to legal protections, it's, um, uh, there's some vagaries there. Uh, typically, the the private sector guys uh, end up on the short end of that stick. I, I would imagine so, because you might be ordered by your customer, let's say the fed, uh, a division of the federal government, to perform an act, which under if you were an employee of the government, you might have legal protections that are clearly spelled out. But as an independent contractor, as a civilian carrying out those acts, you fall under the laws that govern the common man, don't you? Um. Well, correct. Yes and, and no. And, and, well, <laughs> y- yes and no. I mean, those are you know, war zones are um, are um, are a mix of a lot of different um, rules, policies, opinions, and um, and it's a bit of a swirl. Um, you know, 
when we operated, we operated clearly under the rules of engagement uh, dictated by our customer, who was the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. Um, and presumably that authorities, those authorities and protections would go both ways, but um, I guess when politics uh, rears its ugly head, then, um, then different decisions get made. Now, you've made statements that the U.S. military is inefficient and needs to go on a diet, and you point out that private military organizations can run better at a less cost, but obviously there's a limit to how much security a government can rely on for subcontractors to perform. Would you agree with that? Correct. I mean, look, a national military has to exist to do offensive combat missions, mm-hmm. and you know that should be their sole realm. But in the supporting positions... Uh, whether it's training or logistics support or aviation support or maintenance, there's a lot of role for the private sector to play uh, more of a role, and especially an efficient role. And I'll give you an example. Um, one of the one of the contracts my company performed, a competitively bid contract, was called VertRep, Vertical Replenishment. And that's when you embark uh, our helicopters and our crews aboard a uh, U.S. Navy uh, supply ship, and you'd fly from supply ship to warship, flying whatever beans, bullets, parts, whatever the Navy needed flown between the ships. Mm -hmm. Simple mission. But when we showed up to do that mission, we did it with two helicopters and eight guys. Wow. We replaced the Navy who was doing that job with two helicopters and 35 guys Mm -hmm. doing the same mission. Mm -hmm. And for every 35 people they had deployed, they had probably 70 to 100 back in the States training or waiting to deploy so on an apples-to-apples comparison, we were vastly cheaper. Mm-hmm. Now, the analogy that you've used is that uh, Blackwater t- is to the military what Federal Express and UPS have been to the U.S. Post Office. Is that right? Well, we, you know, citing that kind of helicopter example, when you have, um, when you have a free good, you tend to use a lot more of it. So the guy that, that in the Navy that said, I need 35 guys to do that job, he wasn't paying the payroll for all those 35 people. That's right. And, and and so on a on a person by person and dollar by dollar comparison, the private sector uh, shows where the inefficiencies really are. We have to take a scheduled break. When we come back, we're going to find out what made Washington and the public suddenly turn on Blackwater. You're listening to the Costa Report. Did you know that every day we create 2.5 quintillion bytes of data and that 90% of the data in the world today has been created in the last two years alone? This data comes from everywhere, and it affects everyone. This data is big data. Big data is all data, and it's more than simply a matter of size. Big data represents an opportunity to uncover new insights, make your business more agile, and answer questions that were previously beyond your reach. IBM's big data platform uses sophisticated technologies and patented advanced analytics designed to complement your existing information infrastructure. The IBM Big Data Platform allows you to get started quickly today and expand to address more complex problems tomorrow. It doesn't matter where you start. It matters that you start. Find out how IBM can help you turn big data into a competitive advantage by visiting ibm.com slash big data today. So here's a question for you. Is life getting easier or harder? Take the last five years, for example. Do things feel more complicated? more unwieldy, more unmanageable? If your answer is yes, then you're not alone. Technology is supposed to take care of this, but instead we find ourselves running on a treadmill that's going faster and faster every day. 
That's why I'm asking you to get a copy of The Watchman's Rattle, the first book that shows how complexity leads to gridlock, a confusion between facts and beliefs, and eventually failure. The Watchman's Rattle is the only book that explains why those who master complexity come out on top in business, in government, and in life. Go to RebeccaCosta.com and order your copy of The Watchman's Rattle now. That's RebeccaCosta.com. Find out why quick-changing environments mean quick opportunities for success. All right. I know this isn't any fun to talk about, but we should. So, who's going to do what? Flashlights? Nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be found. Batteries? Dead. Great. Emergency supply kits? Not packed. What about blankets? We have an old towel. Good enough. Cell phones? May not work. Uh... Emergency water? Not a drop. And what about food? Nope. Perfect. We all know where we're meeting if we're separated, yeah? The library! Aunt Joan's house. The bus stop. Great. And I'll be waiting here wondering where you all are. Sounds like we don't have a plan. Who's up for mini golf? Winging it is not an emergency plan. Make sure your kids know what to do during an emergency. Who to call, where to meet, what to pack. Visit ready.gov kids for tips and information. A public service announcement brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Are you living paycheck to paycheck? Are your credit cards maxed out? Not paying some bills so you can take care of others? Or are you behind on the rent or utility bills? There is no better time than now to get your finances in order. The National Foundation for Credit Counseling, a nonprofit organization, offers a number of steps you can take to get yourself on the way to living debt-free. Track your spending for one month and record all your expenses, what kind and how much you spent. Use that to figure out where you can trim the fat. Look for low-cost alternatives to reduce expenses. Pack your lunch instead of buying it. Go to the library instead of the bookstore. When your credit card bills arrive, pay more and pay extra, exceeding the minimum payment. For more tips on how to recover from debt or get help in developing a budget, contact the NFCC to reach a certified counselor at 1-800-388-2227 or visit DebtAdvice.org. That's 1-800-388-2227 or visit DebtAdvice.org. A public service message from the NFCC. Got a comment or a question? Visit Rebecca Costa's comments page at RebeccaCosta.com. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is the founder of Blackwater, Mr. Eric Prince. And before the break, we were talking about some of the operations Blackwater took over on behalf of the government and was able to operate much more efficiently. And I believe you were making the point that if you have unlimited resources, there's less need for efficiency. Is that right? Sure. I mean, the simple analogy is if you brush your teeth at night, do you leave the water on or you turn it off? Mm-hmm. I guarantee you'd turn it off if it cost you $3 a gallon. But since it's a, almost a free good, you tend to leave the water run. And so, again, when the, when the military has unlimited free people, uh, they tend to use a lot more and, and the costs go up. Mm-hmm. Now, last year you released a tell-all book titled Civilian Warriors, where you point out that under Blackwater's watch, not one single American leader has ever been harmed and recently, you've said that you feel that had Blackwater been allowed to protect American personnel and embassies, the incident in Benghazi might have been prevented. Can you explain how that might have been prevented? Sure. You know, between Iraq and Afghanistan, 
uh, Blackwater did more than 100,000 missions. Uh, again, no one under our care was killed or injured. Um, we had uh, we had the right people with the right training, the right equipment, uh, and they did a very diligent job. Uh, unfortunately, in Benghazi, you had uh, a very uh, weak preparation, uh, depending on a, a local guard force that was unarmed and unvetted, um, really didn't know who they were, who their loyalties were, um, in an adequate uh, response package. So it, there was just a, there was a cascading amount of failures from ignoring the multiple attacks and intelligence in the area to to even the right people that did not stand and fight. Uh, thank goodness those two former SEAL contractors came over from the CIA annex and evacuated uh, the other Americans from the from the consulate facility. If they hadn't, I believe there would have been dozens of Americans killed that night because the terrorists that came didn't just come to kill the ambassador. They came to kill as many Americans as they could. And, uh, and the two SEAL contractors left, literally disobeyed their superior's orders, and went anyway, moving to the sound of the gunfire uh, to, you know, extract those people. Now, you have a theory about the planning of this attack on the U.S. Embassy and who uh, perpetrated it. And according to you, it was much more organized than we were given the impression that it was. Uh, yes, indeed. There was uh, plenty of advanced planning, um, you know, and the fact uh, the fact that it was done on, on September 11th, you know, it could be... <laughs> Imagine not just an attack there, but um, you know the Al Qaeda battle flag was raised over the U.S. embassy in Cairo. Uh, the American school in Tunisia was burned to the ground, um, and it was very much a pre-planned attack, very much organized. And um, Abu Qatala, uh, one of the terrorist leaders, is still on um, on the loose in Benghazi, um, and no one's gone and got him yet. So when you first heard the stories that this was a response to a YouTube video, what was your reaction? Um, I was... Uh, I don't even know if I want to ask you I, that. <laughs> I was mighty skeptical of that to begin with. But, mm-hmm. um, uh, look, they, they're they looking for a, a, a showpiece attack. Um, killing an American bastard is a big deal. Yes. Uh, there's not been one killed uh, since 1979. In Pakistan, uh, so it's um, diplomatic security matters. It was a trophy. It was a uh, yeah. It, it was a very ugly uh, way of making a trophy. Yes. So one of the more disturbing revelations uh, which has come forward is the fact that you participated in a secret CIA task force charged with killing terrorists, and your name was leaked to the press. And you feel pretty strongly that Leon Panetta had something to do with this leak. So. Uh, I have to ask you, what motive would Panetta have to leak this information about the operation and your name? Uh, I think politics. Um, you know, it's kind of unprecedented to leak a, a Knox name, uh, true name, to a very leaky congressional committee. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have no beef with the agency, but I certainly have a beef with the director for for leaking uh, a true name asset that's... Uh, to my knowledge, and I've talked to a lot of career intelligence officers, uh, that's kind of unprecedented. Why would someone leak a name? Um, I mean, we're 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 civilians listening to this program today. We're not we're not Washington insiders. We don't understand why and anybody say, I, I, would. And I, and I very clearly am not a Washington insider <laughs> either. <laughs> Probably. But, but but you uh, know how to think like them, and we don't. So uh, why would anybody leak the name of an operation 
and someone who has been so productive and instrumental as you. It, it just, uh, somehow the why, the motive isn't clicking in. Uh, I think it was, um, it was kind of pylon politics. And they were looking, um, there was such a, uh, at that time, there was such a, a, a almost a militant um, hatred of the previous administration and looking to um, demonize any and all efforts from that administration that it was one more uh, um, one more kick they could give, I guess. So this was a way of separating from the Bush administration by making Blackwater part of that administration's uh, policies. Um, yes, in some ways. And mm-hmm. in some ways there was other indispensable things that the company was doing that they uh, uh, very much continued doing. Now, you gave the comparison to Valerie Plame, uh, but you also point out in some ways this was much worse because a sensitive program was also revealed. Well, yeah, and, and, and that kind of program, I don't, I don't know that there's a lot more sensitive than that. Mm-hmm. And, and you also feel that uh, you may have been targeted by the IRS. Do I have that right? Sure. You know, after, uh, after the unfortunate event of Nisor Square in September of 2007 and then Congress um, starts coming after us. Then the the blizzard of subpoenas start from every federal agency you can imagine, and some you've never heard of. Um, from the IRS to agriculture to labor to commerce to the State Department to every one of them. I mean, the agriculture was investing how it was investigating how we ship dog food over. But uh, you know, a career. So they just started piling on. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, the career IRS agent, twenty five year guy said, man, I've handled a lot of high-profile cases before. I've never been under so much pressure to get someone as to get Eric Prince. And, you know, as, as some of our staff are making the rounds on the hill trying to explain what the company's doing and what we're not doing, you know, one of the chiefs of staff of a uh, Democratic congressman from Indiana said, it doesn't matter what you guys do, we're going to ride you until you're out of business. The so, real irony here, of course, is that your your company spent so much time protecting these same people who were persecuting you? Well, look, uh, we were there to do a job. We were there to protect the diplomats and the Reconstruction people who were trying to... But even so, that's kind of personal. <laughs> I would take that personal. If I'm trying to protect you and you now portray me as an enemy and come after me, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's my Italian heritage. <laughs> I take that personally. Well, we, um, you know, we were there in Iraq... We provided the means for, for Reconstruction people to get out to meetings to try to turn their lights on and try to make peace amongst the um, amongst the parties. And now, you know, seeing the real tragedy for me is seeing that how, how far Iraq has slipped. Um, you know, the, the United States pulling out the way it did really turned the country over to the Iranians, um, you know, under Maliki, a, an Iranian asset at this point. So yes, uh, and we're now looking at that, toil that same situation in Afghanistan, a country which depends entirely, uh, their entire e- uh, economy depends on the United States, and uh, we're about ready to devastate that economy as well. And we have to take another break. Stay right where you are. We'll be right back with Eric Prince. You're listening to the Costa Report. Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. Are you looking for ideas to create a more balanced meal plan? As one of the world's largest providers of fresh fruits and vegetables, Dole makes it easy to eat the right foods. 
From a wide variety of salad blends and all-natural salad kits to fresh-cut vegetables and a rainbow of your favorite fresh fruit, Dole delivers good nutrition naturally. But Dole goes beyond just offering healthy fruits and vegetables. Dole has their own nutrition institute that gives you the knowledge and tools you need to make smart choices about your nutrition and health. Visit www.dole.com for more information about the Dole Nutrition Institute. Be sure to sign up for their e-newsletter to receive delicious recipes, tips, and articles to help you make your meals the best they can be. Visit www.dole.com for more. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff. But still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. This is the story of Daniel, who was born two months early. He weighed one pound, seven ounces. His lungs weren't ready. His heart wasn't ready. His brain wasn't ready. At the hospital, the nurses said Daniel was a fighter, and they would do all they could to help him. The doctor said even with the best care, Daniel may never walk. He may never see. He may never learn. Daniel's parents spent night after night at the hospital, watching his every breath, holding his tiny hands, and looking for signs that he was growing stronger. At home, his parents looked around Daniel's empty nursery, at the quiet toys and the still rocker, and they hoped that one day they could sit in that rocking chair and tell this story to their very healthy son. Daniel's is just one of the more than 500,000 stories of babies born prematurely last year, but there's hope for a happy ending. The March of Dimes is funding the research and programs to stop premature birth. You can help bring more babies home healthy. Learn how at marchofdimes.com. Working together for stronger, healthier babies. The next episode of Recipes for Disaster. So we've got our neighbor Paul coming over tonight for a barbecue, which is why I prepared a delicious lemon rosemary steak marinade for my special collection of old family recipes. To make sure the steaks are extra, extra, extra tender, I left them marinating out on the counter overnight, just like Nana used to. Maria may mean well, but without food safety, it never ends well. Always thaw or marinate foods in the refrigerator at 40 degrees Fahrenheit or below. Or you could make your friends and family really sick. Maria's neighbor Paul didn't think twice about the steak he ate until he was presenting his company's financial forecast to the board. That's when a sudden bout of food poisoning made it explicitly clear that profits weren't the only thing on the rise. Watch Recipes for Disaster at foodsafety.gov. You'll learn the right steps as Maria does everything wrong. Brought to you by the USDA, HHS, and the Ad Council. Take a moment to see Rebecca's video pick of the week. Go to YouTube and subscribe to the Rebecca Costa YouTube channel. 
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, my guest today is Eric Prince. And before the break, uh, we were talking about the conditions we've left behind in Iraq. Um, do you think we're in danger of leaving behind favorable conditions for terrorists to come back in in Afghanistan? Well, what's your feeling about our withdrawal there? Look, if the United States pulls out completely out of Afghanistan, uh, I would say the government lasts maybe a year to 18 months. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, One of the, you know, a real basic element that the United States has failed to do, uh, and this falls really at the feet of, uh, of USAID, and the State Department was all the economic development stuff that was supposed to be going on hasn't been hasn't been going. And, uh, you know, the energy potential in the country from hydro to mining to oil and gas uh, has really been missed. There's and no so economy there. There's really not an economy. It is a welfare-based economy based on transfer payments from Western nations to prop up the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, second, the armed forces, although there's been some uh, brave... Uh, good units built amongst the Afghan army. Uh, they really lack the logistics uh, and combat support and certainly air support that they need to have any kind of home team advantage against uh, a still very capable Taliban uh, force. All of that combines to making um, uh, to making the country really unravel uh, quite quickly uh, mm-hmm. if the U.S. were to pull back. I, I would say the, the North would remain more stable longer, uh, but certainly the South, the the, the Pashtun area of the country would uh, would really come unglued. Yeah, I think most experts would agree with you on that point. Now, I guess the, once you realized you were going to be thrown under the bus for political expediency, the invitation to move to uh, Abu Dhabi and establish an 800-member force to protect pipelines and prevent insurrection, that must have looked pretty good. Well, actually, I was invited to come out there to do some some other consulting, uh, you know, the media has mischaracterized all my roles in that. You know, I, I gave some ideas on, um, on counter-piracy as well. Uh, mm-hmm. That unit went on to, to do, a, I think, an excellent job of ending piracy. You don't hear much of Somali piracy anymore. No, we uh, don't. <laughs> because there was a land-based police unit that went after the pirates' logistics bases and, um, you know, very quietly uh, went about their business and, uh, and, and did a good job of ending piracy. But, uh, you know... The last couple of years, I started a private equity fund investing in uh, energy, mining, agriculture, logistics kind of opportunities uh, throughout Africa. Uh, it is the last great frontier and, um, and good places to invest. Now, when you were training these special forces, for example, to, put, to quell the uh, Somali piracy or in uh, Abu Dhabi, um, how was that different from your training here in the United States? Well, I didn't do any of the training or organize any of it, mm-hmm. um, but just giving ideas as to how how a structure like that could work. Um, look, building indigenous forces, uh, I'll give you a good example. We built, my old company built the Afghan Border Police. Yes. And it was a very satisfying mission, taking um, taking guys, most of whom had, you know couldn't read, um, and we had to alter the training to even do you know, intro to toilet use and running water and the really basic things that we take for granted. But it was so satisfying to go to the graduations because they were so (laughs) proud because it was the first time they've ever been part of anything excellent in their life. Mm -hmm. Because for eight weeks, their instructors knew what they were teaching. The light switch worked. There was fuel in the vehicle. The battery was charged. There was ammunition for the guns. All those basic things that that you need to make something work, worked. 
And so these guys had never gone to school, really, were at least, uh, we brought them from no capability up to doing um, very capable small unit tactics. And that was a great sense of pride. Absolutely. And you know what? The honor, the honor man, they, they absolutely wore that with a badge of honor. And, uh, you know, we built the narcotics interdiction unit as well, which is a counter drug force in Afghanistan. They very actively raided uh, the heroin labs around the country and actually made the largest counter narcotics bust in history. Uh, uh, guys in Colorado will hate me, but uh, it, was, uh, <laughs> it was 262 metric tons of, of hash. Ooh. Um. I think it was a, the the street value was estimated to be about 1.2 billion dollars, but uh, you know we had uh, we had women in that class, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it seems they they had um, probably about 600 years of pent up uh, anger on <laughs> against men uh, because they they'd come to class, they'd come in from town in their burqa, and the burqa would come off, and they'd be there in their camis, and they'd be uh, doing the the handcuffing and the baton work and and shooting and all the rest, and and they were great. In fact. Uh, one of the uh, early women graduates we had ended up being the uh, the honor graduate. She was fantastic. Well, this is something I can say, but you cannot. And that is, uh, I can't think of someone who would be uh, better qualified to put on the front lines than an angry woman. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't, I don't want in any way compare building forces uh, overseas to the plight of Edward Snowden, but uh, I know you have some uh, strong feelings uh, as to Snowden. Uh, Snowden's uh, recent problems uh, and the fact that he came out about the NSA's overreach. Were there any uh, points in time when you were working for the CIA or the State Department where you faced a Snowden-like dilemma and you thought, well, somebody really ought to know something about this? Um, I wouldn't say uh, during, but I would certainly say after mm-hmm. the, uh, the CIA or the intelligence community routinely oversteps its... Um, uh, it's a mandate to not spy on Americans, um, and I personally experienced that. And it's wrong, it's disconcerting, and it makes you wonder what's the advantage of being an American citizen is anymore. But not uh, just Americans, right? I mean, we've been caught uh, doing well, a I lot mean, of a lot of illegal surveillance overseas as well. Look, um, intelligence services exist to to collect on um, on other nations. Okay. Mm-hmm. But when the NSA is spending as much time as they are collecting on Americans, um, you got to draw the line. And I and I and I know, um, I think there's extremely weak congressional oversight. Um, most of the members of the committee are routinely uh, snowed, not Snowden, <laughs> snowed by by the intelligence communities, uh, by the by the intelligence bureaucrats. And you know when you when you turn people loose with with tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, there's a lot of overreach going on, and, and it's just um, it's just not American anymore. At some point, uh, Congress had an opportunity to vote on legislation which would uh, permit whistleblowers to come forward uh, in a you know in a protected way. And uh, they it, it was interesting that the NSA and the CIA are the agencies that blocked that. They they felt that there was too much opportunity for lawsuits to come forward. So I guess if you don't pave a legitimate way for people to come forward with uh, malfeasance, uh, you're going to wind up with a, a Snowden type of situation, aren't you? Look, I, I, I don't know if, if Snowden is a uh, a, um, a hero or a... Uh, or a traitor. No, or, or a Who traitor. knows? Who knows? But I think he's, yeah. he's certainly played a very important public service role of, of bringing some of this to light because it's, uh, it's 
gone way too far. Yes, it has. Uh, I, I'm one of the few journalists, I think, that suspends any judgment because I can't believe what other journalists report. <laughs> So I I have no idea if Edward Snowden is a hero or he's a traitor. What I do know is if you don't create a legitimate pathway for people to be able to bring these kinds of things to light, you're going to wind up with uncontrolled situations. And I, I think that is a great security risk to the United States. Well, and I think the other thing that the intelligence communities do routinely is hide behind classification. Mm-hmm. And now, how do they do that? Because anything and everything they'll say is classified and can't be discussed by normal people, mm-hmm. uh, and they. <laughs> so if it's classified, to... you're you're putting yourself at risk. Um, I, my my point is they they make every anything and everything classified. Uh, for example, so you can't talk it, about anything. No, no. It, for example, in my book, okay, I submitted my book for the Publication Review Board, as I had to because we used to do work for the CIA. And they whacked 55 pages from the book. <laughs> and Only but, 55? <laughs> but, the, but, the, but the thing I really scratched my head about was they actually blacked out quotes where I was quoting the, the director of CIA from a New York Times report. So literally quoting the New York Times what the director of CIA said, and they said that was classified yet. So I, that's where I got, you know, there's got to right. be some rationale. Right, there has to be. Now we have to take our last break, but we'll be back with Eric Prince. You're listening to the Costa Report. Fifty years ago, Dr. Martin Luther King delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech. But something you may not know is that Dr. King was represented by the world's foremost speaking agency, the American Program Bureau. The American Program Bureau has a courageous history of representing luminaries, entertainers, and motivators from all backgrounds. From Ronald Reagan, Richard Branson, and Mikhail Gorbachev to John Stewart, Michael Douglas, and Desmond Tutu. From A-list celebrities to best-selling authors, cutting-edge business leaders, and the greatest minds in academia, the American American Program Bureau has speakers to fit every venue and every budget. When corporations, conferences, schools, and community organizations need an expert speaker, they turn to the American Program Bureau to help them craft an event that will be remembered long afterwards. To inquire about a speaker for your next engagement, contact the American Program Bureau at 800-225-4575 or visit our website at apbspeakers.com. The American Program Bureau, making history one speech at a time. When it comes to Pinot Noirs, there are very few winemakers more knowledgeable than Scott Caraccioli. So tell us, Scott, what makes a good Pinot Noir? I think a lot of it starts in the vineyard with having an area that can grow the Pinot Noir grape to the most optimal maturation point in the grape's lifespan. And here on the Central Coast, in the Santa Lucia Highlands specifically, we have the ability with the cool climate to have long growing days, but not getting too hot with the coastal fog coming in to cool it down. And it really leads to a perfectly deep, rich, complex Pinot Noir flavor profile when starting to build your Pinot Noir. And from there, a lot of it is just adding the small little nuances of the winemaking that really express the grape in the most positive light. Absolutely. I'll tell you, once you have a Caraccioli Cellars Pinot Noir, you just want more. (laughs) I was facing foreclosure. I was desperate for help. I paid them $1,500 and never got the help they promised. 
Don't let the fear of losing your home make you the victim of a loan modification scam. Remember these facts to protect yourself. It's illegal for most companies to charge fees in advance, no matter how small. No company can guarantee they can modify your loan or stop a foreclosure. And never send your mortgage payment to anyone but your lender. The easiest way to avoid a scam? Don't pay for a loan modification. Get free help from a HUD-approved counseling agency now. To learn more, report a scam, or find out if you've been a victim, call 1-888-995-HOPE or visit LoanScamAlert.org. That's 1-888-995-4673 and LoanScamAlert.org. Know the signs. Get the facts. It's pouring rain. It's real dark outside. Your heart starts beating really, really fast. You've never done anything so hard in your life. This is boot camp. This is the real thing now. It's such extreme pain, you don't understand how you can finish. I began to feel that there was no way I was ever going to have my title, U.S. Marine. It takes special inner strength, courage, and desire to do this. I was just thinking, I'm so close. I'm so close. And when I, I finished, I was like, I'm done. I did it. The moment I will never forget is when this drill instructor that I admire so much comes up to me straight in front of me, put her arm on my shoulder and said, good morning, Marine. PFC Summer Volkman became a Marine. Can you? Visit Marines.com or call 1-800-MARINES. The few, the proud, the Marines. Join Rebecca Costa right now on Facebook. Search Facebook.com forward slash Rebecca Costa. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is Eric Prince. And you were saying that you had to get approval for your book, Civilian Warriors, and 55 pages were edited out along with quotes that were already published by the New York Times. So apparently the CIA doesn't make a distinction between information that's already public and undisclosed sensitive information. I, I think it's a microcosm of, of how things tend to be uh, overclassified and, uh, and overblanketed, and, and it's certainly, um, certainly frustrating. I'm, I'm sure whether it's a whistleblower or a, uh, someone who's trying to uh, correct the organization and, and keep it focused on its core missions, uh, I can only imagine the, uh, the pit of bureaucracy they have to wallow in. Now, do you consider yourself a whistleblower? Um, no. Um, I, I don't know that I blew any whistles in the book. I, I really wrote the book to set the record straight, to make it clear what we did as a company, how we did it, why we did it, uh, that we were you know, operating under competitively bid contracts with very detailed uh, rules of engagement, what we must do and how we must do it. Yes. Um, and I, you know, I never really set out to be a defense contractor. Uh, I was kind of an accidental tourist, building a facility after I got out of the SEAL teams. Uh, because I love the SEAL teams and I wanted to stay connected to that uh, to that group of people. And, you know, one thing led to another. When Columbine happened and the USS Cole was blown up and then uh, 9-11 happened, we kept saying yes when the government called and we performed and uh, and we ran hard. And then to be, uh, as I've said before, blowtorched for the sake of politics is, uh, is kind of unnerving. So I, I guess it's also a cautionary tale for the next entrepreneur dumb enough to devote all his... Uh, 
personal resources to um, <laughs> to the service of his country. Well, let's just say you were entrepreneurial from a young age. You saw a need, and uh, you worked to fill it. Uh, I work here in Silicon Valley quite a bit, and I don't see a huge distinction between whether you set up a private military or you set up a new laptop computing company. To me, entrepreneurs are driven by solving problems. Um, now, I, I don't know if you know this, but during the Vietnam War, I spent a great deal of my time in Japan, Laos, Thailand, and Cambodia. My my father worked for Air America, which, as you All know, right. <laughs> was a CIA operation uh, and was also slapped with the label of being a mercenary organization. But countries like Laos wanted to remain neutral. And, and in the meantime, the Khmer Rouge, Path at Lao, they were on the move. So the CIA set up military operations, which were at arm's length. They called them Continental Airlines, Air America, SAT. Uh, I guess my question for you is this. What's the difference between the CIA setting up four higher militaries or subcontracting to Blackwater? Because I don't see one. Look, again, anytime you're doing a counterinsurgency or a, a difficult mission somewhere, the U.S. military is the finest in the world at big conventional operations, like they did when they rolled from, from the Kuwaiti border throughout Iraq. They conquered the Iraqi military, but now when you stop that uh, and you try to turn into a big constabulary, a big counterinsurgency force, they can't retask that well and get organized. And so the private sector can take some experienced people with the right backgrounds, uh, taking some maybe not state-of-the-art equipment, but adequate equipment, and uh, putting it out there and, and making it work. And whether it's uh, supporting... Um, the government in Laos or supporting the government of Afghanistan uh, against the Taliban, there's lots of ways the private sector can certainly add value. I, I tell some, um, I think, some interesting stories in the book uh, about rescues we've done in um, throughout Africa, about some of those missions. Uh, it's really a story about um, the proven veterans that have already served America once that, again, uh, volunteer, and they go serve again. You know, we were the ultimate volunteer organization because we couldn't stop loss our people. We couldn't press gang them. They volunteered every day to do that mission, and uh, and they did it well. Well, that's really the story of Air America as well. I, I remember my father, uh, once they had emptied cargo, landing on these dirt runways to evacuate uh, Mao tribesmen who could not protect themselves any longer. And uh, just cramming them into the plane, standing up like sardines, and to get them into the city capital, Vinchin. And uh, these were, in my view, they were heroes. They were true heroes. They risked their life every day. They were in these countries illegally. Uh, if a plane went down, uh, no one ever knew that those Americans died in Laos. There is no record of it. And, you know, I, I'm, um, I'm a big fan of... of um Bill, uh, William Donovan, the founder of the OSS. Yes. Really the founder of American intelligence capability. And, you know, he, he set the precedent of using civilians that had the right skills and um, um, courage, knowledge, language, uh, uh, area of familiarity to, to innovate and to, to have a, a creative effort against, uh, against our country's enemies. And, you know, he put an intelligence service together in about a year to a year and a half to take on not just the Nazis, but the Japanese, the Soviets, uh, the NKVD, the, uh, you know, a, a truly a global war uh, very quickly. And he couldn't have done that without a lot of civilians that stepped up and, uh, and did what they could. Isn't it interesting, the connection between having an entrepreneurial spirit, uh, being able to react and respond very quickly, 
assess a situation and move into action, how that plays not only in business, but it's the same skill set applied in a private situation like a private military. Well, uh, you're probably right. You know, um, you, you, we, you know, in business, you don't have perfect information. Yes. You don't know what the market's going to do tomorrow. You have to figure out, um, uh, you, you, you gather your data points as best you can, and you make your decision uh, and hope for the best. And then adjust, because no plan ever really survives first contact anyway. Um, and you have to keep adjusting, and you have to be willing to fail. You know, you almost have to have a wildcatter's heart. Like those guys that, uh, that struck oil in Texas, you have to be willing to hit some dry wells uh, because sometimes you hit it big. Well, I am the daughter of a wildcatter, so I will say that I am infected with that same spirit. And, uh, boy, if you grow up in that environment, it's hard to shake it out of your DNA. Well, uh, I, I, I wish I had been a wildcatter. <laughs> I wish, you know, looking back, I wish I had not started a, uh, a government services firm and instead just gone off and drilled oil. Because, uh, well, now, how are you taking this experience that you had at Blackwater into your investments in Africa? Well, I was actually just named chairman of a company, uh, uh, a Hong Kong publicly listed company, uh, and I have a mandate to build out an aviation and secure logistics capability on the continent of Africa to assist energy companies, mining companies, infrastructure companies that are building a railway, a road, a port, uh, and help smooth the ingress of their people and parts and uh, their equipment as they're setting up their operations and then making sure the offtake gets uh, gets to market safely. So uh, we're not a PMC by any means, but really uh, uh, the logistics integrator that specializes in making it happen in, in rough places. So certainly the, the, the experience and knowledge that we've had working in active war zones uh, will make it, uh, I think, a bit easier to operate into some of the, uh, the, the weather... <laughs> Uh, political, criminal uh, uncertainties that may exist from time to time in Africa. Well, having come back uh, recently from speaking at the G20 Summit on Africa Infrastructure, I can tell you, Godspeed, you cannot get there soon enough. Uh, <laughs> they need a lot of help right now, and help that which they are not getting because, in my view, they are relying on old infrastructure, brick and mortar, uh, those kinds of things when they really need to adopt uh, you know, do Mexico's uh, telephone strategy leapfrog to the next generation technology? And I think you'll be able to bring that to them. That is our program for today. But before we say goodbye, I want to thank you for your service to our country. Thank you for taking time to be with us today, Mr. Prince. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. If your station is leaving us after this hour and you have a question or a comment to make about today's program, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com or send me a note on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and let me know what you thought about our conversation with Mr. Prince today and how you feel about the role of a private military in our country. Are you in favor, against, and uh, were some of your perceptions about Mr. Prince change today? And if you missed the full interview with Prince or any of our other guests, you can download previous episodes of the Costa Report from our website, Apple iTunes, Podbean, and our new YouTube channel. And I also want to remind you that if you haven't already ordered your first edition hardcover of The Watchman's Rattle, go to our website and do it right now. We're almost out of hardcovers, and the paperback is, as you know, already in its eighth uh, printing. The autographed first editions make a nice addition to our your book collection. They also make a wonderful customized gift. If you have a birthday or thank you or anniversary gift that you need, use that opportunity to order something personalized and, insi- and insightful. All of the proceeds from the sale of the books go to expanding the Costa Report throughout the United States. 
So if you've grown tired of the divisive ranting and raving that you hear every day on the radio and on television, join us in bringing partisan-free quality journalism back to the airwaves. Let's put programming that's informative and tolerant back on the air again. All you have to do is go to RebeccaCosta.com. That's my name, dot com. My guest next week is the president of the Rand Corporation, Mr. Michael Rich. He'll be here to give us an insider's look at a company that analyzes data that can be used to forge partisan free public policy. Don't miss Michael Rich from the Rand Corporation next week, right here on the only news program which puts policy ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for another hour of Straight Talk Radio. You're listening to the Costa Report. Did you know that every day we create 2.5 quintillion bytes of data and that 90% of the data in the world today has been created in the last two years alone? This data comes from everywhere and it affects everyone. This data is big data. Big data is all data and it's more than simply a matter of size. Big data represents an opportunity to uncover new insights, make your business more agile and answer questions that were previously beyond your reach. IBM's big data platform uses sophisticated technologies and patented advanced analytics designed to complement your existing information infrastructure. The IBM big data platform allows you to get started quickly today and expand to address more complex problems tomorrow. It doesn't matter where you start, it matters that you start. Find out how IBM can help you turn big data into a competitive advantage by visiting ibm.com slash big data today. Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with a text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Did you just look down at your phone? You did it again, didn't you? You know, you're flying down the road in a three-ton hunk of steel. And a text takes your eyes off the road for an average of five seconds. At 55 miles per hour, that's long enough to travel the length of a football field and cause some serious damage. Turn it off. Trust me. Whatever it is, you'll live. Learn more at StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program. Brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 